Welcome to Dear School Psych Sister, the podcast. This is your show host, Kiara Fulmore, and I am a proud school psychologist. This podcast is dedicated to helping women of color navigate the field of school psychology. On our podcast, we will have invited talks and open dialogues exploring various topics within the field. Our podcast serves as a knowledge sharing tool to help women of color as they grow in their practice. Here on Dear School Psych Sister, the podcast, we believe that our collective wisdom can support our overall well-being. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope that you enjoy the show. All right, everybody, welcome back to Dear School Psych Sister, the podcast. Today, we will be talking about culturally affirming assessment of ELLs, because for me, I've always wondered about how I should approach, you know, different situations in schools concerning students who are bilingual or acquiring the English language. And I know, especially being an early career professional, that there's still places where I need to grow in that area. So I thought that it would be great in order for us to discuss on this podcast. I have a very, very special guest here. And actually, when I first started um, School Psych Sister, the Facebook group, this was someone who I was reaching out to um, the group for consultation about a particular case. And this lady was able to walk me through and give me just the no-nonsense assessment advice about this particular kid because I was so stuck and everybody was saying things and I was just like but this don't make sense (laughs) and I'm so glad that I reached out to her because she definitely made it make sense in my mind we have Dr. Desiree Vega here and I am going to introduce her Dr. Desiree Vega is currently a faculty member in the school psychology program at the University of Arizona She holds a master's and doctorate in school psychology from the Ohio State University. Her pre-doctoral internship was completed through Nebraska Internship Consortium with Omaha Public Schools. Dr. Vega worked as a bilingual school psychologist with Omaha Public Schools for three years before she began her academic career. She was a faculty member at Texas State University prior to joining the University of Arizona. Please join me as I welcome Dr. Desiree Vega. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so, so much for having me here today. Um, I am happy to see that the Facebook group has grown and it's grown to, you know, you taking off and doing this wonderful podcast. So I'm really happy Um, to have this invitation to be here today and talk about a topic that is very much near and dear um, to my heart. Yes, and we, like I said, are so super, super appreciative. And I was ecstatic when when you were referred for this particular topic, because like I said, I do remember that conversation and how valuable it was for me. So Dr. Vega, I am here (laughs) just to just to ask questions about this process and the best practices for this process and recommendations. I'm here to sit here 
and just learn like I know others who are listening to this podcast would love to do. So the first thing I want to know is if you could just begin by identifying some of your key recommendations to school psychologists when evaluating English language learners. Oh, so that is a huge question. (laughs) So I think, you know, before we even get to the evaluation stage, I think that pre-referral piece is so critical. And so doing a lot of, you know, your homework before a student even gets to the testing stage is really important. And sometimes um, some of the factors that we'll talk about today are neglected, right? And so thinking about um, a simple interview with a family member, you know, parent or guardian, or even talking with the student um, and finding out information that would be critical to your evaluation. And sometimes when we don't do as thorough of a job, you know, in the pre-referral stage, we find out information during the evaluation that then kind of throws a wrench in things, right? It may complicate like, oh, like if we would have known this in advance, maybe we wouldn't have tested the student, right? Right. Um, For example, knowing like a student spends, um, you know, a month in another country with their family and that is why they're absent so much or there's a history um, of disability or things like that, right? There's a lot of different information that can come up um, very easily by reviewing records or even just talking to family members um, in advance. And so I think, you know, another piece with that pre-referral stage is making sure that um, appropriate interventions are selected, Mm -hmm. right? And knowing if the interventions you know, have been evaluated for efficacy with ELL students. Um, So sometimes we may just select any intervention that is accessible and there isn't research evidence supporting that it actually works for ELL students, right? And so that may actually contribute to why the student's not responding to the intervention because it wasn't designed for Mm -hmm. them. So I think that's like a really critical um, consideration. Yes. And then I think other issues such as like, was the intervention implemented with fidelity? Uh, what kind of data is being collected? Are we collecting data? Are we progress monitoring? You know, all of those things uh, without just jumping to an evaluation um, is going to be really important. Um, yes, yeah, so talking about some of those structures. Yeah, and, and I, you know, I fully recognize, you know, I was a practitioner for three years and I, I know that there's so many challenges when you're working in the school system. And I think, you know, my experience is working in a, in a high needs district, right? Where intervention largely wasn't being conducted um, or the interventions weren't evidence-based or they just weren't appropriate, but it was the only resource that the school could utilize. And so it was better than nothing, but at the same time, you could be making inappropriate referrals Mm -hmm. um, for special education, which could lead to inappropriate placement in special education. Um, So I say all all of those things, and there's certainly a lot of other considerations to to think about 
before we even get to the evaluation stage. Yes. And then when we do think about conducting an evaluation, um, it's, it's very complicated. So I actually was just <laughs> presenting last week in a class, guest lecturing in a class on culturally responsive assessment. And I do a ton of trainings, you know, at NAS and state associations and always kind of put this disclaimer out there that there isn't really like this, you know, step one, step two, because it's complicated and it's really going to depend on the student's background, life experiences, all those sorts of things. And really like kind of taking another step back and not answering your question yet. When we think about the history of IQ tests, right? So problematic. Um, right. Thinking about how how they were developed, how they weren't supposed to be used and are currently used. We think about early court cases. So Diana versus State Board of Education um, preceded Larry P versus Riles in very similar cases, right? So Diana um, being one of the students and Mexican-American students or students who had, you know, Spanish last names were being systematically referred for testing, being tested with assessment instruments that were all in English mm -hmm. um, and not normed, you know, not normed on, on that group mm -hmm. and subsequently being segregated and placed in, you know, these, these restrictive classrooms. And the same, you know, when we think about Larry P versus Rouse, but for Black students. And so that early use of IQ tests to segre essentially segregate, um, you know, Latinx students was problematic. And thinking about how we use them today mm -hmm. remains to be, you know, remains a problem. Like, are these tests culturally appropriate, you know? Do they account for language proficiency? Do they account for different cultural experiences, different background experiences? Generally, no, right? Our tests are designed uh, for white mainstream culture. Mm -hmm. So thinking about us as school psychologists using these tests and making decisions based on these tests, we do need to really critically think whether we should continue to use these tests mm -hmm. um, or not. And if we must, and I feel like, you know, we are in a situation, often in a situation where we have to, right? We know California has a ban with COG assessment for Black students, um, and there's kind of loopholes around that. So even that is not full protection. Um, but thinking about, you know, we have to make eligibility decisions based on, you know, criteria set forth in IDEA. So sometimes we do have to use these IQ tests. Um, and so when we think about like the best practices and recommendations, well, how can we minimize bias to the maximum extent possible, right? If this is a necessary evil, what should we know? What should we do, right? Knowing like the pros and cons of you know, cognitive testing, for example, I think in my early training, I thought like, oh, I could just use this with Spanish, that's in Spanish. That could be a, a perfect solution. But knowing that it's normed on monolingual 
Spanish speakers from other countries, it's, there, it's very different than the students I'm assessing. So if I'm assessing a student that is classified as an English language learner, you know, becoming bilingual essentially, I'm comparing them to monolingual Spanish speakers. Mm. So it's still not a fair comparison or equal comparison. And so knowing the downside of that, that the student could, their IQ scores could still not be valid or accurate in terms of representing their true ability. And so knowing these pros and cons, mm-hmm. nonverbal testing, you know, there's similar issues in that, we you know, it's not truly nonverbal. There has to be a level of um, receptive language for the student to understand what they need to do. Um, and then we only get a limited scope in terms of what their ability actually is. But we do think about like best practice recommendations, nonverbal testing um, can be like your best option if it's a student um, that maybe speaks a more low incident language and there isn't, a t- you know, if it's not Spanish or English, essentially, there aren't very many other options in, ter- in terms of um, like cognitive tests in other languages. And so nonverbal testing may be the best option in that case. Um, but again, we still need to consider that the items on the test are mm-hmm. very culturally based, right? Very much white, middle-class, Eurocentric. And so we still may not be able to fully capture, you know, the unique abilities of our, um, you know, students classified as English language learners. So there's that cultural loading piece, thinking about the language piece as well. Um, if the student is still developing English, you know, as their second or maybe third language, um, you know, are we measuring their ability or are we measuring whether they actually understood what they needed to do on the on the COG test or really any test? Mm-hmm. And so just, I think, you know, really being able to critically understand these factors when we are engaging in assessment is important. I think you know, when other folks, other educators may see, say they, we get an IQ, you know, we get an IQ score of 78. But then mm-hmm. when we've collected all of our information and we critically consider like, no, the student didn't truly understand or other factors, right, that could have impacted their score and depressed their score, other people may see that and think that the student has an intellectual disability, mm-hmm. right? And so thinking about what the implications are if we do not critically um, interrogate all the results that we do get and knowing like when to stop an assessment, like the student's not understanding, you know, do I continue to subject them to <laughs> essentially like torture and not understanding what they need to do? Um, or should I, you know, or should I stop at this point and pursue a different route in terms of an assessment tool that will be better able to tell you what the student is capable of, like what are their strengths and what are their weaknesses? Mm-hmm. I agree with everything you said, <clears throat> and I was <clears throat> writing down things, um, trying to make sure that I got everything that you said. But I definitely like that whole piece about because there were these structural barriers um, put into place um, and biases in IQ testing and biases 
in other areas of our lives as far as how our society functions right now. Because of all of those things and those factors, we have to do our due diligence as school psychologists and um, have to go about critically thinking, as you said, about this process and knowing that, as you said, if we have to use our, those tests, we need to make sure we use them in a responsible way so that we aren't jumping to conclusions about kids' ability. And I definitely like that you said that there's no step stepwise, there's no process, there's no specific approach, like no universal approach to these cases, because it is a case by case basis. And it's based on the student and what they their lived experiences are, which could be very varied. Um, so say if the school psychologist only has access to um, IQ testing and educational testing, and they don't have these other testing like the VVA and the would they don't have a bilingual school psychologist? Like what what at a basic level could they do um, to assess English language learners? That is a great question. And it it is a common issue, right, with school districts. These tests are expensive. And then when we think about tests being renormed um, or updated versions like, you know, the Wyatt Four recently came out and, you know, thinking about like, can school districts actually afford to purchase these new kits or have like a wide library of kits? Um, and it is very taxing on school districts. And so thinking about what can we do instead? Um, I always tell my students, I teach a psychoeducational assessment class and also when I do like these types of trainings, on this topic, I always say like in a perfect world, I would get rid of, you know, our standardized assessment and utilize the information that we get, you know, within the classroom, from observations, interviews, and other more like qualitative measures versus trying to quantify a student's ability or quantify like their language proficiency, et cetera. I feel like there's so much other rich information mm -hmm. that we can get. Um, outside of these tests. And I do think about my experiences assessing students in schools. And when I worked in my school district, we functioned on a discrepancy model, a 20 point discrepancy model. And so it was rigid. And there would be students that we knew needed additional support. And because you know their score achievement scores maybe weren't low enough that they didn't qualify for services, right? And the teacher would say like, this child doesn't know how to read and that I'm getting scores in the average range on achievement measures. And so thinking about what information actually gives us a good indicator of what the student can and, and cannot do, um, I would love to be in a place where we can move beyond, you know, relying on our standardized measures. But I know that that's not where we are. I know some districts do use you know, other and states use other um, processes for identification of students if they're using like RTI approach. Um, and some districts, like when I worked in Nebraska, um, some of the places in Iowa, just across, you know, state lines, use a non categorical approach for mm -hmm. special education. And so there was the ability to provide um, services without being confined to like a specific label. Mm -hmm. 
But to go back to <laughs> your question, right? Limited resources in a district, you know, what do we do, right? Um, when I present on this topic too, I do talk about a lot of other like informal ways to collect data, mm-hmm. um, particularly um, because of this issue of limited resources. But I think also when we think about the measures that we do have access to, you know, of course there are a few in Spanish, but we're fairly limited when we think about other languages. And so if we're wanting to assess for example, language proficiency. And I don't have, you know, BVAD, Wilcox Munoz, WJ test of oral language. I don't have any of that. There's no way I'm gonna be able to access it. I think one, you know, there's of course the state um, kind of language proficiency test mm-hmm. that is, you know, whatever your state uses. Mm-hmm. But I also think that there's limitations to that approach as well. And it shouldn't be relied on 100%. Yeah, I think I it could that. be one, you know, like one piece of the your data point, but collecting mm-hmm. other things. So things like language samples we talk about. Okay. And so it could be as simple as recording, you know, audio recording a conversation with the student, right? And then mm-hmm. thinking about the list of different components of language, I think collaborating with a speech language pathologist in this case, would be helpful too because of their expertise and training on, you know, kind of the ins and outs of language in ways that I think school psychologists are not trained. So there's more like structured and unstructured language samples, um, collecting language samples. And so the unstructured could be just having like a conversation with a, with a kiddo. But I think some students may need more structure, especially if they're just giving like one word answers Uh, So how do we like pull that information out of them? And so other ways could be like um, you telling a story and having them retell it or giving specific prompts. Um, And so sometimes it could be like, you know, tell me about, um, and making sure, I think this is the hard part, right? Because some of the examples that I often see could be like, oh, tell me about your last birthday or tell me about your summer or your spring break. I think because we're in COVID right now, but then also different cultural considerations, like does the student celebrate birthdays and holidays and things like that. Um, And so just thinking about like, what could be a prompt that could get a student to talk freely um, and being able to record that. Ideally, if you do this in both of the languages, this would be great. And of course, having like an interpreter um, that can facilitate that and kind of can kind of help you through understanding like, you know, what is their language like in their native language and what is it like in English and making um, comparisons of sorts. There's also an observational tool. Um, The acronym is S-O-L-O-M. I think it's Mm -hmm. Student Observation Language. Yes, Mm -hmm. okay. (laughs) I'm like, Mm -hmm. I can't remember the acronym right now. It has scores to kind of quantify, um, but I think utilizing it to get qualitative information is important too. And again, being able to do that in both languages is helpful. I think certainly there are limitations within school districts and who can be, you know, who is accessible as an interpreter. And so maybe it can only be done um, in English, right? 
Mm-hmm. But I think having that information can help you kind of tease out like, you know, how does the student comprehend language? Uh, does the spe- student speak fluently? What kind of vocabulary do they use? Um, you know, those sort of factors can help in collecting like more qualitative data um, to look more holistically at students' language proficiency, for example. Yes. I have came across this tool actually by just doing my own little process. I was always interested in California's way of assessing um, assessment. So I actually looked at, I feel like it was maybe California State or something like that, their personal toolkit for assessing English language learners. And I came across that the observation tool, the SOLOM, I believe it is. Yeah. And I give it to um, teachers and kind of go over it with them if they have any questions. Um, But I I found it very, very helpful. And it it definitely goes along with this whole like process of uh, just making sure you do the work before and build a relationship with teachers. Of course, observe, Mm -hmm. observe the student, get those samples. I love that sample. I love the idea of recording the student and getting language samples. I think that that's brilliant. Um, it's something that- And it's, it's pretty you know, simple, right? It's not right. something, you know, we think about some of our standardized tests that can take an hour, two hours. You know, a language sample can be a lot quicker, right? 20 minutes, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then of course, time to review it. Um, but just thinking about like the richness of that data in addition to or compared to the more standardized data, right? We know we have like the Woodcock Munoz, which I, um, you know, used so much when I was a practitioner mm-hmm. and appreciated being able to compare language proficiency in English as well as in Spanish. Um, I didn't use the BVAT as much. Um, you know, the BVAT is old, right? 2005, I believe is when it was last normed. Yes. Um, the, the pro, of course, is that it's available in so many languages. Right. And I think it's like 17 languages or somewhere around that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having that tool um, is helpful. But again, we have to consider that it's, you know, 15, 16 years out of date at, that, at this point. Um, and so thinking about the limitations of that tool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think... I think this whole process of uh, cultural loading was always interested, <laughs> interesting to me. Um, I remember seeing the presentation where they had like the test items and then <laughs> they did like a scale according to which subtests were more culturally loaded. Are you familiar with that, um, that scale? And are we still engaging in that process where we kind of like map out which subtests are more culturally loaded? Yeah, so this is uh, definitely uh, controversial among, um, you know, the community of researchers. Um, you know, it's the CLIM, right? The Cultural Linguistic Interpretive mm-hmm. Matrix that is part of, like, the cross-battery software. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, full disclosure, myself and colleagues have, you know, looked at research and conducted our own research and actually recently published a paper um, you know, showing that, you know, there, there's chance differences between our 
English language learners and non-English language learners using the CLAM, right? And so it's not able to differentiate appropriately. Mm -hmm. And then there's the camp of folks who go hard for the CLAM and believe in it, right? Mm -hmm. I think on the surface level, it's great, right? To be able to, like you, just like you said, to see the different subtests across, you know, pretty much every COG assessment um, in terms of cu cultural load and linguistic load, right? Is, is this, you know, um, block design, is it heavily culturally loaded? Is it heavily linguistically loaded? I think, again, like a surface level is great, but there hasn't been empirical research to support um, kind of the allocation or placement of these different subtasks within the matrix. And so it was, they used the expert panel um, to put this together, but there isn't any research around it, right? And so then the research that has been done um, hasn't been able to show that there are you know, clear distinctions between ELL and non-ELL students. And so when I do trainings, again, you know, it's inevitable that people ask about this and mm -hmm. I generally don't bring it up mm -hmm. because it's just not a part of, you know, my process. Um, but when folks ask, you know, I, I give them that clear information that there isn't research to support it. I think that's kind of the short of it. Mm -hmm. um, but I know that it's used widely. And because it's used as part of, you know, it's part of the cross-battery software, it's right there. And so if you have a district, for example, that is using the patterns of strengths and weaknesses model, using cross-battery software, it's, it's all part of the software package. And so they're going to see it, they're going to use it. Um, and so I think, you know, as a field, we need to more largely interrogate our use of it. And there should be some empirical research to support it. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that some subtests are not more culturally loaded or linguistically loaded than the others. We know that, that it's true, right? We know that some subtests um, are not going to be as appropriate for students um, whose native language is not English. Um, but just knowing, especially as practitioners who are in the field and maybe using it, just knowing um, more about how it should and should not be used, I think. Um, I don't know, I was reading somewhere, whether it was in an article or, or in, um, as part of the, the software package that it shouldn't be used to make, it shouldn't be like the deciding factor, right? right. Um, they're saying like, this is just a piece of information that mm -hmm. should be used, but I don't know that that's actually how it's being used. I think there are school psychologists who are using it to make decisions. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. As you talk, I'm thinking about like the trends in the field. And I'm also thinking about MCSS and RTI. And recently, our state moved towards that as a process. And so with RTI, lending itself more to problem solving, and, you know, child study, we, we should be doing, like you said, these things where we're critically thinking about the student and their particular um, lived experience and doing things like, you know, language samples, just observing them. So that particular approach lends itself well to all of the, I guess you would say non-standardized assessment 
um, that you can use to get that rich data. But as you've mentioned, if you are in a state and you do processing of strengths and weaknesses, then you know cross battery is your go-to and <laughs> just is, you know, <laughs> what yeah. it is. And for, there's so much controversy right. on, on patterns of strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like we have to make a shift as a entire field and and states. And it's also a political thing, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. And, you know, folks have to also acknowledge that education is not apolitical. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Although folks would like to think that, you know, it's it's just not true. It's very much true. Special education has money attached to it. But, you know, Mm -hmm. I'll just leave it there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I will just leave that conversation right there. All right. So thank you so much for that. I think I got some really good nuggets um, from the conversation that we talked about, Um, just pre-referral and then some just assessment pieces that could potentially be different. Um, And you also giving your perspective on um, the matrix is really good for, I think, some people to hear. I want to shift to talking about how we... uh, engage with you know different stakeholders um as far as I guess our consultation with them about the assessment of ELL students um and particularly teachers right now because when we first talked first talked it was me trying to explain hey you know this kid I know that this says this but I really feel in my gut that there's more to this student mm-hmm. <laughs> what that one score said so can you just talk to me about the approaches that you know you've seen people um use or you personally use in your consultation with like administrators, students, and teachers about how should you interpret that one score that you know may not be representative of that student? Yeah, and you know, I also fully acknowledge this is tricky to navigate, right? Mm -hmm. I think part of the approach, you know, is, you know, putting it out there like you all have the student's best interests in mind, mm-hmm. right? You all want the student to be successful and get the support they need. Um, so, you, you know, you as a school psychologist, the teacher, administrator, parent, whomever else is involved, right? The common goal is, I just want the student to be successful. I want them to get the help they need, right? Right. But then I think, the complicated piece, right, was is when folks just see special education as extra help. Mm-hmm. And it's so much more than that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there is, you know, some research there. Um, and I think, you know, one of my students is doing this, this study for their dissertation, looking at the pre-referral process. Mm-hmm. Um, because there is existing research that shows, you know, once a student is referred, um, in the pre-referral process, 
they generally end up getting assessed and they generally end up getting placed in special education. Mm-hmm. Um, and that referral piece is really critical um, and could be detrimental to the student. And so I think, you know, beyond everyone having a common goal and what educators, other educators, teachers, principals, et cetera, may not fully understand is that special education is not just a way for a student to get extra help. It's a label, it's a disability, right? And if the student does not truly have a disability, they should not be in special education. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the rates are, but you know, in my professional experiences, many times when students get placed in special education, they never exit. Mm-hmm. And so is this a true kind of mission or goal special education in terms of remediating um, the, the deficits a student may have, or is it ever being achieved through special education support? Mm-hmm. And then also I think if a student truly has a disability, they should be in special education. And right. if they do not, they definitely should, should not be in special education. The tricky part too is because when we think about disproportionality, we see Black students and Indigenous Native American students are overrepresented in special education and have historically been overrepresented in special education. Mm-hmm. When we look more nationally at the numbers for you know students who are classified as English language learners, um, or even at the intersection of you know ethnicity as a Latinx student. We don't see that overrepresentation nationally. So when we look more closely, say by district or even you know by at the school level, um, we we may see the overrepresentation there that doesn't appear um, when the data is you know all together, right? When we disaggregate the data, we may see those discrepancies that that don't show up. Um, on a national level. And so keeping, keeping that in mind too, um, that disproportionality should still be a concern at the more local level, at your school building level, at the district level. And so looking at those rates too, are we placing students in SPED who truly need to be in special education, who truly have a disability? And so you know, I've been in many a meeting when I've done my full evaluation, and yes, I know that the student has been struggling, but the results don't show that there's a disability. Right. And so I think when we're in districts or schools where there aren't those additional supports like intervention um, or, you know, really any other kind of tutoring or things like that or adequate English language development support, so say like bilingual education programs, mm-hmm. um, that again, like special education is seen as the only savior mm-hmm. for students when it could actually do more harm. Right. So like here in Arizona, there's a ban on special, on, excuse me, not on special education, on um, bilingual education. And it's been in place since 2000. Um, and it was voted on. Um, and so, you know, uninformed voters said we should have an English only model there shouldn't be dual language programs Mm. the caveat is that there are of course dual language programs but you have to be English proficient Mm. so thinking about like who those programs are 
actually designed for and right. that's like a whole other <laughs> discussion right <laughs> targeting white middle class folks for their kids to be bilingual but not our native you know Spanish speakers or speakers of other languages as well and so thinking about does the student have adequate access to instruction right and, and the graduation rates are atrocious for ELL students in the state um, they're at 32 percent in Arizona and the lowest in the nation. And so thinking about like, is this correlated to the lack of appropriate or lack of access to appropriate um, education and educational opportunities? Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, kind of circling back to the question, right? You know, you all have this common goal, um, but again, you know, getting back to like, the student does not have a disability and being able to back that up. Right. right. What data I, it sounds like. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, thinking about those exclusionary factors as well. And so I think a lot of the, how do I say this? So a lot of times the comparison is to monolingual English speakers, mm-hmm. right? So relative to the other students in the class, the student is not, this ELL student is not performing on grade level. But the other students haven't had to learn another language on top of learning academic content. Right. And so they don't have kind of that added, you know, challenge for lack of a better word. And so we should be comparing ELL students to other ELL students from, you know, as similar background as possible to see like what has their language development process been like? What has their growth been like? What are their academic outcomes like to see if there are similarities or differences and cause for concern if there are stark differences, right? If, if there's just, you know, a lack of complete growth, but also I think in conjunction with other, you know, other exclusionary factors such as that access to appropriate instruction, background experiences, mm-hmm. um, attendance. I mean, there, you know, there's, there's so many factors we have to consider, but being able to have like all your data to help support the fact that they are not, um, they don't have a disability if that's what your data is showing you, despite um, the fact that others may not be happy with that information. And I think also having recommendations, like what is gonna be feasible for the teacher, you know, the classroom teacher, um, or the school to do? Is there an interventionist? Um, are there, you know, paraprofessionals or someone who can implement interventions in the school um, to support that student? Because maybe you know they are struggling, and we don't want to just then be like, oh, they didn't qualify for special education. I don't know what you want me to do, because there'll probably be a referral again the next year. Right. So That's what we see all being able to provide the teacher with, um, you know, some concrete recommendations and how they can continue to support the student, right? Because then the teacher may be upset, the student is still maybe struggling in the classroom, or the teacher may still perceive that the student is struggling, although it may actually be appropriate given their, you know, whatever background um, factors that they have. Yes. Um, But not to leave the teacher hanging too. So I think as much support as possible um, 
you know, throughout that process is going to be important. And you could do all that and a teacher could still be pissed off. At right. You. <laughs> I'm glad and you said you. it. <laughs> <laughs> the principal might not, you know, there, there's, those things can still happen. There's, you know, there's no like perfect answer and perfect way to negotiate it. It's hard. But I think at the end of the day too, like this assessment is in your name. Mm-hmm. And as yes. a school psychologist, you can't, you know, if there's a lawsuit, you're going to be questioned. Why did you put the student in special education if this data clearly showed that they do not have a disability, right? Mm-hmm. And that's going to be on you. Um, and so making sure that your report is also like ethically appropriate, legally defensive, defensible, and also doing, you know, what's right by the student. And it could be, you know, they don't have a disability. We need right. more intervention right now. We need more time. We need collaboration with, you know, if it's a bilingual ed teacher, ESL program teacher, speech language pathologist, you know, that could be, you know, where y'all have to circle back to. Right. Yes, I definitely like that. Um, focusing on the fact that we're all here for the same goal um it's all about the children as dr barrett says (laughs) you can definitely (laughs) bring up those trends um that you see in the u.s and talk will talk about social justice and disproportionality um i like that you said comparing ells to ells um just making sure that you're being responsible there. And also when you talk about intervention, you want to do that because you want to see about the intervention group and how the intervention group is performing. So that's, that's good. And then also given those concrete recommendations, but still knowing that you can do all that and it's still not to <laughs> make yeah, you want it to turn out. Happy, yeah. You know, you fight your battles and you win some and you lose some <laughs> and you just you just move on after that you lived you lived to fight yeah. another day and I think you know you know you mentioned social justice and I think the kind of win you know I don't know if that's the right terminology but the win is advocating for the student and what's right, right. for the student mm-hmm. and what's you know legal and ethical and you don't at the end of the day you don't want to say like the student has a disability when they don't mm-hmm Right. Special education is for students with disabilities and disabilities only. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree. So I have one more question and then um, we will kind of wrap up here. All this knowledge is great. So thinking about the other side of that, I know that I've had, like I said, very unique experiences with these particular cases. This is why I think it's so important to go case by case on this um, evaluation process, but how will we engage with, how should we engage with parents? Because I know that there's a wide variety of languages. And I also know that there's different customs and cultures. And I even know there's nuances, even in um, particular languages um, that you have to be um, privy to. So I know one thing is making sure that you are kind of checking yourself and your personal biases before you engage with parents, but any other tips or strategies that you kind of give folks 
as they're trying to engage with the parents of ELLs? Yeah, I think this is a really great question. And, um, you know, as you said, like that checking biases piece is really important. And I think about some of the narratives around, you know, our minoritized students and parents where um, folks may jump to the assumption like, oh, they just don't care. Right. And when we have that mm -hmm. mentality, you know, we're just we're starting off on the wrong foot to begin with. Right. Um, and thinking about how it's just unfair to say that about families. You know, they may have other competing priorities, priorities. than mm -hmm. coming to a meeting. Right. Like mm -hmm. They have to work. They don't have the flexibility of taking time off and coming for a meeting. Right. There's mm -hmm. just so many things. And. I think generally parents care or guardians care deeply about their kids and want the best, right? And so I think that needs to be our mentality um, from, from the start. And maybe a parent doesn't, a guardian doesn't answer your phone call, your email, um, a note you sent home, and don't just write them off, mm -hmm. right? There, there could be a billion reasons why they didn't respond maybe they didn't know they needed to respond maybe they didn't understand because it wasn't a language that was accessible um, or maybe it wasn't a language but it still wasn't accessible because of the jargon you know that's often used in the school mm -hmm. and so I think that respect piece is important and they're they're the experts of their kids right <laughs> better than right. They know you know everything. most people i mean they, you know there's times of course where you know parents may say my kid would never do that right and mm -hmm. their kid didn't do it but <laughs> <laughs> you know parents see their kids in different lights but i think you right. know parents um you know are we have to see them as the experts of the kids and they have information that we simply don't have we're with the kids for limited you know limited amount of time um, and so there's there's such rich information that we can get from parents or guardians um, and so being able to build a relationship and build rapport mm -hmm. can really help and kind of bridge any mistrust right there's there's certainly mistrust that families may have of schools or I think culturally sometimes um, feeling like you know, the school is the authority mm -hmm. and the expert in terms of educational decision making and parents may not want to or think they should be involved in that. And so it could be like, oh, you know, whatever you think is best for my kid, I completely trust you. Um, and then the teacher makes you like, oh, well, they're just not involved mm -hmm. when they just have a different kind of perception of what their role is and what the teacher or school's role is. Um, so I think approaching it in that way, I think one, you know, story I often share with my students is when I was a practitioner, um, you know, there was a family, you know, a Latinx family, Spanish speaking, and they had never attended any meeting at school. Um, and we were assessing, assessing their kid um, and the teachers and school staff were pretty much like, oh yeah, they don't come to anything. And, uh, you know, I reached out to the family um, and being able, you know, to communicate that with them in Spanish certainly helped. Right. So, you know, I reached out and, you know, they talked about how they lived way across town, right? And so their kids were bused to that 
school way mm-hmm. across mm-hmm. town. So there was that one barrier that was probably ignored by the school. Um, and then they didn't have transportation. And so, when, you know, me having talked to them and talked about, you know, what the process is so that they could understand, like, that their presence was not only needed, but valued. Mm-hmm. And reaching out in their language helped mm-hmm. um, again. And, and so when we had the meeting, the parents showed up. Right. Sure and so I did. think, you know, when we go the extra mile sometimes it does show the parent that we care that we value them um that their you know presence is important as well um i think those little things can go a really long way in terms of building relationships and building rapport um and kind of helping them understand why this is important what is this special education evaluation what does this mean um, mm-hmm. But we may not always do that, right? We may just be like, I have a high case load. I sent an email, I sent texts, I called, I left a voicemail, you know, mm-hmm. I expended all of these things and the parent still hasn't replied. And so I'm just going to move forward without their input. Um, but that lack of input could also just be very detrimental. Yes. And I also acknowledge that you know, especially with COVID, right, there's so much going on right now. And Mm -hmm. it could be incredibly difficult, if not impossible to reach some family. Yes. And so, again, I don't think there's like a, you know, perfect approach, and it's not going to be 100% foolproof. But I do think there are ways that we can build relationships. I've done, you know, I've done home visits. Mm-hmm. before if you know yes. you don't have transportation you know many parents are just like you know sure <laughs> you know come come to my house I've picked up parents and driven them to the school for meetings you know and of course it was all like pre-covid and you know <laughs> years ago but I think doing those things can again like show the parent that you care you're invested you value their presence their presence is important they have a lot to contribute you respect them and I think that goes a really long way right most definitely I definitely like the um, fact of you just just extend uh I would say just extend the olive branch even at the beginning (laughs) pre-referral make sure you have those relationships so that it's easier once you get into the referral process. Um, I always engage heavily and we had a wonderful parent liaison at my previous school and my relationship with her extended my relationships with families because I would sit in sometimes with her as she talks with families and just had conversation and not talk about the serious stuff first. I think that was really helpful in building those relationships. And she was absolutely um, wonderful. Well, I I really truly enjoy this. Um, Dr. Vega, you gave so much good guidance and just recommendations for people to take back. I want to just extend if you have like one, um, something that you, that really sitting heavy on you, I would like to invite you 
to say that or give like one last piece of just general advice or any books or resources that you have before we wrap it up? Yeah, that's, that's a good um, question as well. I think, you know, acknowledging that this is a complicated process um, from the outset can help kind of relieve some stress and pressure. I think, you know, we all want to get this right. Um, but there isn't necessarily a right because it's going to depend again, like on so many different factors for that student, right? For that family. Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing like you can reach out for support. You know, I'm, I get emails all the time from people and I'm like, sometimes like, I don't know how you even found me, but to do sure. like consultations. <laughs> I like someone from Hawaii contacted me <laughs> in the fall. And I was thinking like, how did you, right. how did you even find me here? But knowing like they're, you know, they're on, um, like if folks are on Facebook, there's a bilingual school psychologist group. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a, a great resource. Mm-hmm. Um, there's of course your Facebook group, School Psych Sisters. Um, said no, no school psych ever so I think there's a lot of other ways to get um, consultations to mm-hmm. about specific cases so I think utilizing those resources I have a ton of just different books that I use um, like books that I've used since I was a practitioner and also now in my teaching and my research and the training I do um, there aren't a whole lot, a lot of books on like assessing culturally and linguistically diverse students. And so I have mm-hmm. kind of like the five to seven of them. Uh, <laughs> so I think if Need to do better. Kinda, yeah, <laughs> someone just kind of like Googled assessing school psychologists or excuse me, assessing um, culturally and linguistically diverse youth, or there's a book um, assessing bilingual children in context. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to look at like my bookshelf right now. Um, the Handbook of Multicultural School Psychology also yes. has some chapters related um, to you know social emotional assessment, which I know we didn't get to chat about, mm-hmm. um, but also the cognitive and achievement and language piece as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, I'm happy to to consult with folks or you know lead folks to others who can be. Um, you know, of support as well. I, like I said, totally enjoy this and I'm pretty sure people will take um, something away from this. And as I've always stated on every podcast, it's like I'm learning as I'm doing this this process (laughs) of doing the podcast. So I welcome the learning and I thank you again, Dr. Vega. Thank you so much again for having me. This has been really fun. Thanks for tuning in and I hope you caught some gems from today's show. If you really liked our show, please make sure to subscribe and share the link with a friend. To offer feedback or pose insightful questions, I'd welcome you to submit a voice message on our profile or email schoolpsychsisters at gmail.com. Our social media platforms are at School Psych Sis on Twitter and at School Psych Sisters on Instagram. If you identify as a woman of color in the field of school psychology, we do welcome you to our online community through Facebook. Thanks once again for listening in to Dear School Psych Sister. We hope to see you next time. <laughs>